Thanks for clicking on this podcast. This is Coming Out Stories with me, Emma Goswell. It's brought to you by What Goes On Media, and every fortnight we bring you an inspiring LGBTQ plus story. You can follow us on Twitter via at Come Out Stories and on Instagram via at Coming Out Stories Pod. You may have noticed that this episode is a bit longer than usual. That's because it's an epic tale, a life story that wouldn't be out of place in a Hollywood movie. It's a tale of rags to riches, back to rags and still being fabulous. It's also a story that involves talking about sex and centres around the subject of being groomed. I wanted to warn you of that before we start because you may find some of it uncomfortable to listen to or even triggering. It is a story worth hearing though. Even though the person who was in a relationship with Valentino in Bermuda has since died, we've decided to remove his name. Valentino identifies as being gender fluid and while they're in Manchester, England now, they're from Bermuda. Let's meet Valentino. I was born 1971, and at three months old, I was orphaned. Apparently, my mother arrived at this lady's house and said she'd be back for me and never came back. That was the beginning. Um, And uh, it was a poor family that lived on what you call a land reserve, which is like a dump. A dump. It's like a wooden shack on a dump, you know, where they put all the rubbish and stuff. And oh. this lady and man had already had six kids of their own. Three girls, three boys. They kept me. Apparently, I found out later in life, apparently there is some kind of blood relation to my biological mother. My father, biological father, his mother was Portuguese, I believe. And his father was Indian. So he's like a mixed race. And my mother's black. Mm-hmm. So I'm very dark skinned. From Bermuda. From Bermuda. Um, You know the story about the plantations in America and the Caribbean back in the Mm -hmm. day. So that's the kind of lifestyle that everybody grew up with, the plantation lifestyle. Fear of white people, issues with race and stuff, but more fear of whites and knowing your place as a black person, fitting into society. When you were mixed race, you were um, perceived as one that was going to be gilding the bridge, so to speak. But I realized very early on that I was a bit different. You know, when you're young and you've got your afro and your sister's doing your hair and she's combing everybody's hair and she's grabbing somebody's head in the kitchen and dragging that that, that, um, comb through and it's, it's all very difficult. And then she gets to my hair and she says in front of all the other kids, isn't his hair so easy to get through and so nice because it was straighter and curlier? And that was one of the first times I started to feel different in life. I, I was um, coming on to being a preteen, I guess. And, and it hurt just to feel different than other black people. And then they started to tell me that, you know, I was um, of mixed origin. Although I looked dark skin and everything, he, he had pretty hair and all that. And then um, we're talking about the 80s, pre-AIDS epidemic time. The stepfather in that family in which I grew up passed away from cancer. I was about 11 or 12. We're talking 1982. At that time, realizing I was uh, the orphan in the family, I started to question what was going to happen to me? Would this family not have time for me anymore? Now, 
by this time, I'd already known. I I knew I liked boys. By the way, by the time you were eleven, yeah. that's I already it. knew yeah. I loved. What was what's the first year of primary school? How old are you there? Like eight or something like that. Been there, a while. I can't remember. Six, seven, eight, whatever <laughs> that was. Um, yeah, I I knew I liked this certain boy in school, and you know you hear the egg and spoon race and the potato sack race and all that stuff, and we were yeah. doing one of those sports days. And him and I went up onto this little mound, and I decided I was going to carry him on my shoulders. And he was the prettiest blonde, blue-eyed boy. He looked like something from the Blue Lagoon in my eyes, in my child eyes. I was like, "That's what I like." Maybe it was a difference. I don't know because I went went to a mixed race primary school, and I just knew I liked him, and I knew boys are for me. And did you know? Did you get a sense at that young age that you liked him, but that was wrong? Were you getting told that at that was at that particular age? I knew I liked him, and mm. I had other male friends. And I knew I liked them. At the time, I knew that me liking him, I had a sense that I had to be separate from the other boys and girls, even on the on the playground. The boys used to play football on the field in the schoolyard, and Lee and I used to sit off on this little mound together. But sometimes he would go and join the boys. So when he went to play football and play in the bushes with the other boys, I would go and、um, just sit off by myself. There were other kids that were effeminate in the school that I knew of. Boys at lunchtime, all the lads used to go to this. Jungle area, so there was say about seven of us walked up to the area where we go into the trees. We're gonna have a, we're gonna play like um, do you remember um was it Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Piggy. Flies. Lord of the Flies. Yes, yeah, you remember. <laughs> so it sounded something like that. It was very much exactly like that. Most of the kids were going to this area, and they were like they didn't want me to come. I could just feel it. Just you, nobody had to say anything. And I and I found a little cave, and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna stay here. If does anybody want to stay with me in this cave, where、well, you guys are gonna find your own cave and stuff?" And they were like, "That's great, Valentino. We're going over here." So they all went into the bush, and for that whole year, I'm sure, I had my little cave with my little crew, and it was about three or four of us. But slowly but surely, it ended up just being me. And I don't know where the cave was or what they did because I never ventured past that line, and that was me. Being defined as gay and out, out of the loop, basically. But no words were said, so you didn't get like verbally bullied for being gay. There was teasing,、um, and I watched them tease other effeminate boys in the school. I was best friends with one of the most popular boys, and we lived right next door to each other. And、um, whenever we went home to our private time, he would say to me, "It's because you're gay and." You know, and all that stuff. You're different. Let's say used to say you're different or whatever. And I said, I don't, I don't need to be around him in school anyway. Do you know what I mean? Then high school came along. When we were in high school, this same thing was carrying on in high school. The boys had their little area. I found a spot behind a wall where I used to hide. <laughs> It's terrible. Because you were getting bullied in high school. I was getting、well. bullied in high school. No one wanted to sit with me at lunch or recess. The black boys wanted to play basketball. The white boys wanted to sit up on the wall. The girls used to sit over on this bench, and so there was a wall. 
a half half of a wall next to the um the courtyard and i used to just go and sit behind that with my bags i was like i'm i'm fine here but it sounds like you weren't fine no it, it sounds wasn't like a very isolating childhood it was so isolating that the student counselor she was i can tell you now but i couldn't have told you then obviously lesbian and she asked mm. me to come to her office one day and she said um are you having trouble because you're isolating everywhere you go around the school you don't you can't be around anybody and the teachers brought it up in the staff meeting or something so and i've come to talk to you come down to my office and have a little private chat and it was very gay affirming her conversation with me it was just like i understand what you're going through you're going to understand things later in life about why this is just know that there's people on your side blah 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 and i was like okay so school is no more f- not fun anymore <laughs> it wasn't like unpopular but i wasn't i was on the lower level of do you know what i mean i wasn't they were disgusted they just thought it was weird and how are they going to explain to their mates that they had a gay friend and all that and but at any point at any point during all of this Valentino, had you actually come out or did that oh yeah no 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 i was very out i was very out but i wasn't like oh my god girl and hey and all that stuff i loved michael jackson i loved five star i had a, a picture of morton hackett from aha above my bed right. and all that stuff my mom had asked me once are you gay and i or i said the words homosexual she says that's too many letters for me to speak. <laughs> Just wanted to know whatever. So how old was this then when you, your mum asked is, you? This is within my my preteens. Oh, before you were thirteen. Oh yeah, yeah. You've been out for a very long time then. Really. Oh yeah. There's different worlds when you're gay. You see, and the story I'm trying to get to kind of started around this time. In the black community, they it was like you were touched by God. You know, and the F word, you know, the one I'm talking about. Mm. That was the word they used to refer to us. And I know they didn't mean any harm. That was all they knew. I said it to my mom, why do you use that F word? The words homosexual or gay. And I know them as Fs. And that's all I'm, that's all I'm saying, blah, blah, blah. My brother realized I was isolating. And he introduced me to music. And he used to buy me records, vinyl and stuff. And we had a DJ thing in the house. And my mom was like, Valentino never goes out to play with anybody uh, or the other kids. He just wants to sit there and play that music all day and night. And so my brother used to get me records on a Saturday. So I had something to do, which was fine um, for a time. The scary thing was that I stopped going to school and I started to frequent tea rooms. And what do you mean by tea rooms? I'm guessing it's not what I'm thinking of. Public restrooms. Those are called tea rooms. Literally, get dressed for school with my book bag and everything. Walk towards the city, bypass the school, and go to the public toilets. In the city, there was about five of them. And because it's Bermuda, we had cruise ships. We had Her Majesty's Royal Navy. We had the dock workers, because they used to bring freight in on the docks and stuff. And at each one of these Mm. ports was a toilet. Oh, it was a whole world. I loved it. I loved it as a kid. <laughs> but how did you how did you know about this as a child? I don't know how I found the first one. I think what happened, I needed to use the bathroom. And I went into one near the docks. 
and I had two cubicles, toilet things. At, at the partition, there was a hole. You know what the hole was for. But there was a hole in the partition that kept getting bigger every time I went there. And there was writings all over the, all over the um, partition on either side. Uh, some th say, uh, here's my phone number, call for a good time. Meet me here later between 5 and 6 every Wednesday. I'm on the QE2. And stuff like that. Now, I'm, I didn't even know about sex at this point. This is way before sex. And I, well, I knew, I learned. <laughs> and I, I used to sit on the bog just curious like what are these people coming in and out of this toilet to do because they're not using it as a toilet it's a meeting place for gay people that's what was going on and it was mixed with the general population so sometimes regular people come in and people would jump and and scurry about and pull their pants up or whatever uh they'd be having conversations and some People that worked on the dock, dock security people, knew that I was hiding in there all the time, because there was like a little spot in the in the toilet where I could hide my bag, and I used to hide my bag, take my lunch there, do everything there until three thirty in the afternoon, and then make my way home like I came from school. And how old were you then, Valentino? I'd say between honestly between fourteen and sixteen. And you were just watching what was going on up until a point, and then one day. Some guy whispered something through the hole and I jumped because I didn't know what the hole was for. And I knew this is going to sound ridiculous. I actually thought the hole was what men used to pretend it was their woman. And it had nothing to do with the person on the other side. But it was just a hole because I didn't know much about sex. And this man stuck his thing through the hole and it was a big white thing. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And my heart started to race or whatever. And then... Um, he whispered something, he, he pulled his thing out, whispered something at the hole, I jumped back, and then he stuck his, his thing through again, started playing with it for a bit, and then he wiped it all up, and he walked out, I'm sat there in shock, he stuck 20 quid through the hole, or underneath the thing, I can't remember, and, and he said, thank you, I didn't even do anything, I was just there, so I go back to the toilets now, and see what's going on there, and, um, I started to play with the men and do stuff. And those days, and I said, okay, there must be more toilets in the city. And so I explored more toilets. All of them had their unique stamp on them because some were for the um, Her, Her Majesty's Royal Navy. Some were for um, the cruise ships that came from America. Some were for the dock workers and that, and, and everybody played the toilet scene a bit differently. During all this, though, did nobody realise you weren't going to school? Was there no concern for you? They marked me down in the grades and all that and was slowly getting worse. And my mom was getting a bit concerned, but no one from my family. I think either the poverty, the black thing or whatever, or they're not having, not being very well educated. They wouldn't come to like PTAs and all that stuff, parent teachers mm -hmm. meetings or whatever it was. So they weren't checking. There was a gay history teacher that looked out for me and the, um, the student council person, they would ask me things, but they wouldn't pressure me. And say, whatever you have to do, you have to do, whatever. So I say I was 15 years old, and this is the tea, and I was in one of these public toilets, and this fella said, come with me. You don't need, you shouldn't be in here. And I said, well, I love it. You know, this is my thing. This is what I do during the day. And he says, come with me. I, you, this is not a good lifestyle for you. Well, he was right. I, mean, I told him to bugger off. <laughs> yeah. 
I seen him the second time and he, he walked me to the outside of the toilet, but he kept his distance. And that's when I realized being gay was problems in society. And he just went, like, come to me. He used his finger to gesture it, follow me. And I thought twice about it. And I something in my head says, you know what? Right at this point, you're leaving your whole old life behind. My family did not know how to, to raise a, a gay kid. There was no direction for it at the time. So I don't blame them. I feel sorry for them, for the church and for everything that affects black Caribbean people. Well, I was going to say, I'm guessing it was a very religious environment, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Your life is dictated by God and church and um, all these things. And this is something that can be cured, I guess, later in life. If someone was like this, where I came from, they were touched, which means you were touched by God, which basically means you were mental or crazy. You know, I went with this gentleman. He said that he was opening a store the next year when I was turning 16 with the help of another gay man who happened to be one of the wealthy, prominent people of our community. And when I turned 16, could I come down to where he's opening his store, it's a little bookstore, and he would give me a job, something legitimate to do to make money instead of sitting in these toilets doing all this. Mm. He said I'd have to start in the mailroom basically in the basement with all the boxes. And there was something you did with magazines back then in bookstores where you had to rip the cover off, take all the covers and then mail those away to America and they would give him money to say that he didn't sell this many or he sold that many. So it was called doing returns. And that's what I ended up doing with another young boy who was in the mailroom. This is like when I was 16 year, years later, a year mm. later. So you did get a legitimate job. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't graduate high school because I didn't have the attendance. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so no qualifications whatsoever. And he offered me this thing and, and, and gave me a few dollars every night after school. I, I go there for a couple of hours. But at the same time, this bookstore happened to be the quintessential bookstore and the only one of its kind in Bermuda where gay men came to get their material, if you know what I mean. Mm. Back in the okay. day, there was Huncho Inches, The Advocate magazine, the interview magazine from Andy Warhol and all those, all the early publications for the queer community. And it was, I guess, the gay thing was illegal in Bermuda, you know, punishable by, I don't, I don't know if it was death or imprison, imprisonment, but that was the situation. So it was illegal. Yeah. It was illegal to be gay then, yeah. Yeah, homosexual activities, sodomy they call it and all that stuff. And um, I was working as a 16-year-old in the hub of all the gay activity in the island without even knowing it. It was not just a bookstore. It was a place where gay people would go. And if the straights were not in the shop for a period of time, that's where they would um, commune, talk. We had to sell all the gay stuff in brown paper wrapping. Oh, wow. you know. So it was a little LGBT centre. It really, really yeah. was. And that's that's yeah, where I think that's cool. where my activism spark started <laughs> so it sounds like being 16 was a real pivotal time in your life then so you're working at this bookshop you were meeting lots of people you were just starting to get involved in lgbt activism and you met someone very important yeah yeah it's funny because when i was 16 i think that's the, the pivotal part is that was the point i turned my back on what you call conventional love that love story of 
you know, the prince meeting the princess and all that stuff and running away and being happy ever after. I met a young man who was the same age as me um, and we started a relationship and it was the purest, most beautiful gay relationship that I ever have, ex have experienced. Mm. I've experienced a lot of love after that, but that was it. He was your first love. And that's, yeah, he was my first love. And that's what everyone says, that um, you'll never forget your first love. Nothing will be as important as your first love. Well, I ended the relationship when we were both about 18 so that he can go on and be what his parents wanted him to be. And it crushed me because I knew I could have fought for it, but I didn't. But at the same time, there was another relationship going on with the owner of the bookstore. Oh. And this is the man that approached you in the toilets and said, this is not the right life for you, right? Right. And he got me involved in this bookstore situation, which I did not know at the time, and no one could have imagined what was going to happen next. But that was the beginning of my quote-unquote grooming, a life of being groomed. Mm. I was told at a young age, you may not love us, these people, but you will learn to love. So this man essentially was saying that he was rescuing you. Yes. So he was taking you away from the tea rooms, as you called them. And Other the people would call and them... the horrible life of an orphan and all these sort of things. Mm -hmm. I had a huge drama with my family. I basically walked away from them at 16 and into this world. Because you were gay? Because there was problems with that? Yes. Because you weren't going to school and they weren't happy with that because, either? Because they said, these men are going to do nasty things to you. This is not a good life for you. My family do love me. They don't understand or accept the gay thing, but they do love me, mm. which I accept. But I said, I'm, I'm going to be out and I'm not going to closet myself for this. I'm gay. There's nothing you can do to change that, you know. My mom used to use the F word because she didn't know any other word to refer to me. Are you a F? God, yeah. That's, I can't live in that environment. I knew that at 14, you know, I can't. So they said, fine. So I went off to live and work for this company. This company was owned by, who became my life partner mm -hmm. after a time. The story goes, I was welcomed into this world as someone who needed to be rescued and helped, which is fine. Lots of kids get rescued by wealthier old men. Gay. They just do. And there is a whole culture of young men like myself, who you may never know about, who get caught into this world. I, I guess some people would think it's awful. I don't. Well, I guess the point is, you're very young and impressionable, and you're being told you're being rescued, but I'm guessing you're paying for that being rescued by is, using your body. Now, this is the other thing. Some of these men openly have paid houseboys, paid escorts, paid sex partners, paid partners. Mm. I was not a paid partner. But during the years between 16 and 20, I had no sexual relationship with and okay, so it was just a paternal type relationship? Uh, yeah, big uncle sort of. Mm. We had, we had meetups with um, and some of the famous people here and there, went on yachts. The, the life was crazy. 
so that's a massive transformation in your lifestyle to go from you were really living in, in poverty, mm-hmm. you know, to then being on billionaire's yachts. Yeah. And living the life, I had a butler, a maid, a houseboy, a maintenance guy, the gardeners, everything. I woke up in the morning, went to work in a chauffeured car. Well, we'd go to after work, meet him at his office, and the driver would take us back for half an hour drive back to the mansion. The house would be already set for guests, which came at 7.30 promptly. We'd have to get out of our work clothes and into our dinner suits and sit down to dinner with all sorts of celebrities. I had to sit there and watch the parade of drama of some of these very super rich men and their lovers, whether they be paid or not, and whatever went on. I was never paid for sex on my services. Mm. He's a wonderful person. In our life, I was his partner. As far as I could see at the time, I was allowed to just be his partner, knowing that he actually had a paid prostitute on the side for his sexual pleasures and stuff. I slept in the bed and I lived there. I had my own room and all that sort of stuff. If he had his paid partners over, he would just go and have personal time with them and I just accepted it, I guess. But you shared a bed with him? Yeah. Eventually. So this happened yeah. after you were 20? Yeah. So for the first four years, well, to begin with, you'd have been underage then? Yeah. The first four years, um, it was the other guy and myself. And he basically wined and dined me, showed me how to eat, eat a uh, dinner, five courses and things like that. I went to all the top restaurants. I had a tab at every bar in town. I had a huge wardrobe of disco clothes and I could go out. And at one point, the company went into a lot of trouble and people go through depression over these things. So I said I couldn't live with them at the time. I knocked on Mr. White's door and I said, I can't stay with this man anymore. And he says, fine, just stay here for a bit if you want. Everybody knew I couldn't go back home and have him had a taste of the good life. It's a bit hard to get the taste of champagne Mm. and caviar out of your mouth at that age. (laughs) So I stayed with but at the time he had a paid lover. Mm. And he said, that's my paid lover. I pay him for his companionship. And the paid lover and I became good friends or whatever. I used to have boys over to the mansion and stuff or whatever. And then one night, we used to watch TV after dinner and stuff. One night, um, I went into his bedroom and I said, I don't know what I'm doing here, but it feels like the right thing to do. Right. So you wanted him? Yeah. I loved him as a person for Mm. being like that father figure to me all this time. And I just felt I owed him something really at the end of the day. Sounds terrible, mm. and it? I was like, oh, you know, you want this, don't you? Maybe. It's like, yeah, of course. Bang. So we ended up doing it, and I enjoyed it. And in the morning, I woke up, and he says, I'm off to work. I've left some money on the dresser. Oh. But stay here. If you're here when I get back, you're here. And if you're not here, you're not here. The house is yours. Do what you want with it. Well, Freddie will be back. Maria will be in. She's the maid, and da-da-da-da. And there was a few hundred pounds on the dresser and there I was in this mansion in this new world was I there when he got home from work damn right (laughs) I was there when he got home from work but did that not feel wrong the fact that he'd left money for you that he always paid for your services and you didn't want that did you we had the hugest argument about it when I got back and I said um 
I'm not that. I never wanted to be that. He said, no, I just thought maybe if you, if you wanted to go out for a drink or something during the day while you're here, I don't imagine you have any money in your pocket, do you? So there it is. And that was how he explained it. And I said, well... I, I don't want that kind of relationship. He says, I'm not paying you for stuff and I won't give you any money in the future. If you want to stay, stay. And if you want to go, go. So he says, but I'll pay for everything around the house and you just live here and you work and you want to go on the weekends, use your wages and whatever. And it started there and it went on for the next 10 years like that. So you're sort of a couple, but you're not really out, are you? You're not in an environment or a society where you can be out or... We're in Bermuda, and it was Campus Christmas, Campus Chris, Quentin Crisp. Yeah. That high voice, and da-da-da-da, and I thought, everybody in the world must know you're gay. Why do we have to have separate Christmas parties, one for your gay friends and one for your straight friends? Why is it when the garden party come around for tours, which they did once a month, do I have to hide all the phallic um, ornaments around the house? <laughs> that you got from the Inca Valleys in, in, yeah. in Peru and all that stuff. That's, you wouldn't understand. They don't see me as gay because I have a high voice. They just see me as a rich white man. Mm. And that's all they see. I say, are you serious? <laughs> and, and people didn't. So he got by in, you know, the upper echelons of Bermuda society and no one realised he was gay? Exactly. Nobody mm. seemed to... And I said, but they must... but. Bermuda is so broken between black, white, gay and straight that I guess people never, it wasn't a thing to out people and da 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 da. But I suppose it was easier to be in the closet and people didn't assume in the 70s and 80s, didn't they? I mean, we all thought Elton John and George Michael were straight, didn't we? It was exactly exactly the same as that. It was just like, from my perspective as a, I thought I was a gay person DJing in the gay circuit underground in Bermuda I thought if I could tell somebody's gay anybody could do you know yeah. what I mean but they couldn't they're hiding in plain sight <laughs> like Liberace yeah but it was at that point I realized I was a part of a secret society of I don't know you call them houseboys you call mm. them rent boys uh because there's a real power dichotomy here as well isn't there Valentino so he's how many years older than you 30 I guess he's 30 yeah. years older than you and yeah. white yeah. And very wealthy. And Extremely you're poor, wealthy. young and black. Yeah. There's a he big difference. Me. He told me, he said, you, we live like 3% of the world. The way we lived, I never saw the money. You don't see money when you're that wealthy. Mm. You just see um, power and direction. You can delegate to people. You can What you want, you ask for. There's no exchange of funds like within the mafia mm. and... You know, no suitcases full of money and drugs and all that And you that can get stuff. away with being gay and doing illegal things, I guess. You can, you can get away with being gay in a country where it's illegal to be gay at the time. It's difficult, that one, because at times when I was at work, my life was threatened by gangs of bullies who threatened to kill me. Why? And then I would come home and I would tell and he would get some top police sergeant over to the house and then they would sort of deal with things privately and quietly. But why were you threatened? Uh, Bermuda is very homophobic. This is the hard thing about this being a coming out story. I couldn't tell this story if I was sitting in Bermuda. But like during that early 90s, we had gone to a party for uh, gay rights and um, a bunch of powerful people in the gay community would get together 
in some old farmyard shack in the back of the woods somewhere and um, try and hash things out. How are we going to deal with gay rights in our community? How are we going to um, get the government to change laws? Mm. We try to do things like raise money, raise funds, raise awareness. But we'd have to have these private meetings. And at one of these private meetings, it was myself, David, a few other business people, this trans girl or guy called Upi Ming, who was later murdered in cold blood because of his sexuality. Um, we were all there at this party and we had some um, candles out the back and stuff. And we went out into the, um, the courtyard of this, this farmhouse and there was like a dirt track and this jeep pulls up, proper army stuff. You know, there's army jeeps, the mm. thing with the bar across the top. Yeah. With proper guys in balaclavas and some of them without and dreadlocks and Molotov cocktails in all their hands. About five guys in the truck and they were going to storm our party and burn us down. Because they knew you were gay. Yeah. I heard you Fs were out here. We're not having this in our country and all that sort of stuff. And us black girls like Marsha P, we stood up to these boys like at Stonewall. And we fought them back with words. Just violent words and threatening behavior. And probably picked up a couple of bricks. (laughs) And they sort of said, we'll come back and get you. We'll come back and get you. So they drove off and they... One of them threw one of the Molotov cocktails and it led on fire all over the patio. We put the fire out. And then when they drove off, we all decided to pack up and just leave the area mm. because they, we were afraid they might come back with more people. I can't say I was out. I think I had rules I had to abide by. I could live a life and be free within the confines of the establishment. Mm. I was not allowed to date any other the top boys, the top men, the money men in the establishment. I can be friends with their lovers and go and hang out with them. When they had their paid company over, I could have sex with them if I wanted, but guaranteed one of the old fellows would be walking in the room. (laughs) You know. It's a weird world with, with its own set of rules then. It's just like what I think Harry and Meghan are trying to explain. It's just, as long as you play by the book, everything is okay. But I broke the rules because I refused to be labeled as anybody's boy toy. I was very adamant about standing up for LGBT rights in any way I could. But every time I would go, well, no, we have to have some gay people at this dinner party. We have to. We have to do something for LGBT rights. I would get shut down and said, we deal with things very quietly and very discreetly around here, and that's how it works, this, that, Mm. and the other. And I just had to accept it. And then I was forbidden to see certain people and be around certain people. So you could have a gay relationship, but you couldn't be out and proud about it. Yeah. You certainly wouldn't be holding hands in the street, would you? Exactly. And so I could never really get in drag and do things. Everywhere I go, I had to remember I had to represent my family well. And then one represent these guys well because they were. I was getting to go places like no one ever could. Private jets to the Seychelles in Africa and all this sort of business. And did you, <laughs> and were you still in contact with your family? What did they make of it? My family were invited over sometimes, like Easter. My mom, the family would come over, and I had a sister-in-law who used to give 
nasty looks over the garden. She'd stand on the top balcony, like gone with the wind and all that business, and look down at and I hugging and kissing by the palm tree. And she'd be doing voodoo things, you know, <laughs> shaking a doll or something. And I, I said, isn't it hilarious? And he said, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Why has she got to be that way? Mm. They come, they eat. You know, I treat, treat my mother very well. And my mom loved his company and everything like that there. When I went to school in, in, in the 2000s, when, when he sent me off to college, which is another story entirely, um, you know, he'd, he'd buy my mom tickets and I'd get limousines and have my mom come up and stay at the, the house in Toronto and whatever. So they had a good relationship. I think he even went to one of my sister's weddings when I wasn't around or whatever, and mm -hmm. she'd gotten married. So my family and him had a great relationship on the side. His family and myself, we didn't. And so he didn't want you to come out, though, did he? he? He just wanted to... Carry on with the status. Carry life. on with the status. Da, 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 da. And I said, no, I can't put up with this. I can't live like this. And at this point, I was in school in, in, in the 2000s in college studying recording engineering. And I said, um, I can't have his life interrupt my, my life experience like this so much. I go back to school. My fees aren't paid. I go back home. My rent's not paid. I'm like, what? I've been cut off. Mm, cut off dropped like a hot potato, mm. Live, living on the street, honey, mm. in freezing cold Canada, without a pot to piss in. I didn't want to do prostitution in the clubs because I was scared of HIV and things like that there. I managed to call another wealthy friend of his, because, you know, you meet people. They paid my rent for the next six months or whatever. And my life since then, this is, we're talking like 15 years ago, it just dropped out of da 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 you just can't cut somebody off like that you know what i mean so you're used to being given all these things and then suddenly you yeah. gotta fend for yourself not even i literally lived on the street out of i lived on the street in toronto i moved to montreal i stripped in clubs i did prostitution blah 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 and i was determined to get myself back on my feet mm. and then at some point, I ended up back in Bermuda. You, you find ways to get from A to B. I was living on the street in Bermuda, and I were trying to talk and work things out. So sometimes I go back to the house. I still had all my things at the house, and in the house in Toronto, and the houses in Bermuda. Um, you know, I could still get in the house and whatever. You know, the staff would always let me in. And David and I were still having sex up until a year before he died. But so we even just, though he'd cut you off? Even though. Yeah. And... He was so angry, and I realized it wasn't about me. It was about my relationships with other people. Mm. And we loved each other so much. So did you have to make your own way then? You had to move, yeah. move out and make your own way in the world? I, Lord knows what I did. A lot of this is a blur. What happened, he died in 2013, and I've just like been living in a delusional bubble. Not knowing if I'm coming or going, what my future is going to bring. I got blackballed, which is partly why I couldn't find work, because all the wealthy people on Front Street in Bermuda, and all this was happening. So I couldn't get work if I wanted to. Was that partly why you ended up in the UK then? Yeah, yeah. So what happened, um, I was living on the street... It was Halloween night, there was a drag show, and I met my present husband. And when he found me, I was on the street, and I told him, I said, 
you know, I'm from up on the hill in the big house and down here and I'm nobody and mm -hmm. this is it. And I had a nice little cardboard box I got from a nice Italian shop that I used to buy clothes at that I slept in at night. Um, where, where was this? In Bermuda. <laughs> on the streets? Yeah. So you didn't feel like you could go back to your family then? No, my, my, they just, they were just like, we're not having any of it. They were afraid. They're afraid of white people, a lot of black Bermudians. Mm. There's a definite fear. White people aren't poor, and there's something to fear. Mm. That's just the way it is. It's plantation life in, mm. in the islands. That's just the way it is. I kept my chin up, and I, th I met Neil, and he was a school teacher at Barclay Institute, which is a top black school in Bermuda. And... Um, I explained to him, and he said, fine, come stay with me. He said, here I am staying on somebody's couch again. You know, and then we started off, and then he got a call from his family around the same time saying that his father in the UK, in a place called Witness, was um, terminal with cancer, and he had to come home. And I said, well, I'll come with you if you want. And he said, that would be great. Not knowing anything about it, I said, what's it like? He says, you won't believe it. There's poor white people over in the UK. <laughs> So from Bermuda to witness. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, there'll be a party, you know. And we did that. And, and I've not looked back. I think now I'm just like, I want to be more out. How, how do you feel then being in the UK compared to being in Bermuda? Because, you know, you are somewhere now where you could walk down the street holding hands with a man. When I came to witness up north with Neil, it was the opposite side of the tracks. You know, the first pub I went in, what's a black gay man doing in here? And da da da. And before you get your pint poured, you've got to explain why you're even standing there at the bar. <laughs> you know, and I was assaulted and I was beaten up by youths. What, in witness? Yeah. yeah. Jumped and. You For know. being gay? Yeah, oh yeah. They would call me the F word or the. B word or the M word yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely still homophobia out there. All that stuff. Yeah. And I would always say, no, not me, girl. And they were like, come over closer and say that. And I would say, I'll come one step closer. No, not me, girl. And then the fist would start swinging and da, da, da. blood would start flying over the place. The next thing, you know, somebody's called an ambulance from the neighbor across the way and you're in an ambulance and you're going to... So you haven't experienced much uh, joy since being here then. It's still as homophobic. It's, oh, yeah. So I've, gotten, it's, I've been roughed up, but I've had great times. When I, when I started volunteering at Gadio, it was so liberating just to be able to sit in a room and be able to discuss these the stories of my life if anything it was just getting it off my chest and i felt better mm. and i felt stronger because i used to leave manchester and head right back to witness into the drama but you're now in manchester which is uh, generally speaking a very progressive and lgbt friendly city would very you much say? very much yeah. very much and I, you know i've had the wonderful opportunity to help do some music for Salford Pride. I've DJed at a couple of places on Canal Street, and I even DJed at Liverpool Pride. I'm still evolving as a gay person. I don't think I'm out. I'm I'm a construction of something that's been designed or I've designed, and it had a purpose, but something happened and now it has to find what it's going to be now well what is it going to be because valentino as you said is it <laughs> is a fake fake name you've invented yourself haven't you yeah I've, I've created this thing but it's not i i don't know my true self i know i'm gay i know i was born gay i know i was groomed starting from the age of 16 
I know that to liberate myself, I have to sort of find the fine line between all these things where they all fit. I think I'm going to be a drag queen. You think? I mean, you always dress fabulously, so you might as well go the extra mile. I think when I grow up, I'm going to be a drag queen. When you grow um, up? When I grow up, I'm going to be a drag queen. I don't feel that I'm a woman, but my pronouns are she and her as Valentino. Okay. When I'm on my OnlyFans page... Have you got an OnlyFans? Of course, who doesn't? But Me? on that one, I'm Blackjack. And he is he and him. Plantation Platinum is my drag name. Love it. I don't know what her pronouns are yet. I'm still mm. working with that one. So would you say you're a bit gender fluid then? A bit gender queer? Very much, yeah. yeah. Very much, yeah. very much. I adopted her and she as my pronouns only as a result of the abusive way people refer... To put me down, they would say, oh, her and she. So now you're owning it. I own it completely. I am that bee, yeah. you know. Okay. I know you're loving being, you know, out and proud and... You've, you already, taken, yeah. you've already taken part in loads of different prides and now you're hoping to get involved in pride in your home country. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on, this, I'm on a subcommittee to help develop Bermuda Pride this year. I've been doing activism with the country for a lot of years and I often only DJ for the LGBT community to encourage changes in laws and things like that there. You know, I mean, all these things are great, but they don't pay the rent. And I think I've got to start earning my career as a DJ as much as I'm starting to earn my sexuality and earn my freedom. Yeah, so I'm not rich and famous anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm still fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I will always be fabulous. I normally end by asking people for advice for other people coming out. But I feel like with you, Valentina, I would like you to... Maybe if you could go back in time and speak to young Valentino, even though that wasn't their name, what advice would you give to yourself? Ooh, girl. (laughs) I'm telling you. mm -mm -mm. I don't even know. I think where I am is because of God's love and God's plan for me so this is exactly what was supposed to happen i don't like it i don't agree with a lot of it and to the younger self that you know when you had that when i told you i fell in love for the first time mm-hmm. at 16 that first love i would have fought for that love if i was going to change anything else in my life if you find love and you know it's the real deal i think you should just fight for it and stick with it whether you're gay straight black white yellow or brown just follow the love because nothing else works. <laughs> I don't know where I am and if I'm on the right road or the wrong road. I, this is the destiny. I have fans. They love me and people care about me and they think I've made a difference in their lives. Some people will say they wouldn't have had their children if it wasn't for me introducing them to their partner and things like that. So that gives me fulfillment. I don't want to have kids and stuff. You know, I can't really have a life until I found out who I am. So when I actually eventually do come out, I will come out on top when I grow up someday. But you still haven't come out yet? Gosh, I can't wait for the next interview then, once you have come out. I'm telling you, this is the thing, and people would see me and think, oh, you're such a proud gay person, or this, that, and the other. I'm like, you have no idea. So what what do you mean, though, that you haven't come out? I'm just not fluidly out. I I can play the game. 
I know how to assimilate to different parts of culture and things fit in and da, da, da. I don't play the games. I know that I'm gay, that's fine. But whether I carry the gay stuff, I don't know if I carry it. I feel myself folding my hands in my pockets or stiffening up at times and things like that still to this day. I just don't feel like, oh, girl, all the time. Mm. I just don't naturally feel, no. I just mm. like, mm -mm. But it looks like I'm all that, do you know what I mean? Mm. But I'm in my head, I'm like, it's dangerous walking this street at this hour at night or whatever. And, you know, oh, my God, those guys and, and every, all these kids around here in England driving around dressed in black on these little bicycles. They scare the pants off me, honest to God. If I see them up at the other side, I just start to shake sometimes. I'm afraid of being murdered because I think I'm on the hot list of the kind of person that's going to be the next trans person that's going to be done in. And I think, that's, I think that next person's me all the time. And, and the black thing as well, but the gay thing, obviously, because I think there's a lot of isms in this country. <laughs> There's a lot of isms, and I just think I, I'm one of those that stand out. And yeah, I let it. I don't let it go to a hundred. I, I I cap it at about eighty. I turn the gas up to about eighty, and I go, okay, I got so much more. You know what I mean? Yeah, you need to turn it up to a hundred. Exactly. <laughs> so when I get to a hundred, then you'll see. We'll see what this year brings. Let's see what it brings, indeed. Valentino's been waiting for a long time to tell their story, or spill the tea, as they would say. So a big thank you to them for their patience and for sharing their story with us. If you'd like to find out more, or even book Valentino for an event, their website is djvalentinocartier.com. djvalentinocartier.com. Next time, we'll be hearing from Kit from London, who took a while to twig that she was a lesbian and didn't come out until she was 30. I kind of always kept thinking, like, why are all my friends like obsessed with boys? Like, what is this obsession? I just don't get it. And I would see my sister absolutely lose her mind, get her heart broken, have these intense relationships and love affairs. And I kept thinking, what's the fuss? Like, I just don't get it. And I just assumed that I was just handling it really, really well. And then I, came out, fell in love with women and, and absolutely lost my mind and realised that I just, I just had been doing it wrong for 30 years. <laughs>